The Colorado Behavioral Health and Wellness Summit brought clinicians, educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders in the field of behavioral health together at the University of Denver. The summit was a collaboration between the Mental Health Center of Denver, the University of Denver, and Envision U, who were gracious enough to invite the Emergency Medical Minute to record the event and share it with you all. Here is Michael Miller, the Strategic Initiatives Coordinator for Jefferson County Public Health, with his presentation, The Cycle of Drug-Related Stigma, Implications for the Opioid Crisis. If a couple folks join us a little bit late, that's totally cool. Um, so this is a cycle of drug-related stigma, workshop, breakout, I'm not sure what we're calling them. Um, so I'm Michael Miller, I work for Jefferson County Public Health. Um, I'm the Opioid Initiatives Coordinator. Basically what that means is I support a collective impact coalition, which is basically a multi-sector collaborative effort to address substance use at the county level. Um, if you've heard of the Colorado Consor Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention, that's kind of like the state level we're kind of the local county level. And most of the metro area are, yeah, so Tri-County has a similar coalition, Boulder has a similar, similar coalition, Denver has a similar coalition. Um, so I'm honored to be here with y'all today. I'm a person in sustained recovery. I am also a person who actively uses drugs. So just wanted to put that out there. A um, little bit of my background is uh, professionally, I did tech startup sales for a really long time. Got super sick of it and decided I wanted to transition my career a little bit more towards helping people who use drugs, helping people in recovery, get into recovery. Um, <clears throat> and I started, uh, I guess, a lot of my work in private treatment. Hated that as well. Left private treatment uh, to go work for a national advocacy and lobbying organization known as Young People in Recovery. Got kind of tired of the nonprofit industrial complex a little bit, so I ended up making the switch over to public health, and I love it. Uh, a ton. All right, so I'm going to start off really quickly just so that we can all kind of check in where we're at. I'm going to read a series of statements, and I just want you to think about like how it sits with you, how it hits you. All right, so one, and I want you to remember the one that hits you the hardest as just like uncomfortable, or you're, the, the idea just doesn't process right in your head, or we feel like that. So first one is people who use drugs are weak. I feel sorry for people who use drugs. Abstinence, so not using drugs, should be the ultimate goal uh, in any support given to those who use drugs. In harm reduction, it's important to be careful not to enable substance use. And the last one is most people who use drugs consider their health care a priority. So some positive, some negative, depending on the frame that you're looking at it through. Did, anyone, did any one of those statements hit someone particularly hard? Abstinence, the abstinence one, like taking an abstinence stance. Why did it, why did that sit weird with you? Um, it doesn't work, like the Derek program didn't work, so it just like, is uncomfortable when people think that it is. Got it, got it, thanks. The, the, in harm reduction, it's important not to be careful, or to be careful not to enable. Did that one hit you funny? Yeah, I just don't like that. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. I try to, like, it's just really frustrating for people. Like, I try to help them understand it's one thing to withdraw from alcohol, um, but when you have someone who's addicted to heroin, it's so um, an obsession of the mind, like, that they need something to help them taper off slowly. So it's not enabling, I think it's kind. 
yeah. such a higher relapse incident rate. That makes sense. I usually start off presentations like this just with kind of a check-in activity like that, just to get us kind of into the mode of where we're headed next. Um, so today, really, the goals are, sorry, my computer runs a little bit slow, to define stigma, understand its different forms, understand how it relates to substance use, uh, understand how language and labels impact stigma, um, hopefully be able to describe the dynamics of drug-related stigma, and then developing strategies and actions to take with us to challenge it. And then just some really quick agreements. These are kind of just boilerplate agreements that I use for most presentations. We don't have to read through all of them. Does anybody have anything that they'd like to add for kind of like a group norm for the next hour? These are usually for a little bit larger groups. Also, I am distilling a three-hour presentation down into an hour, so it might feel like a fire hose a little bit. I've got question uh, sections built in, so just be aware that you're going to have a ton coming at you. But are there any that we'd like to we'd like to add, or any we'd like to talk about really quickly? Because if y'all are good, I am. Perfect. All right. So just the basics: substance use exists on a continuum. It, this is a fact, right? It's not really black and white. You're not either using drugs or alcohol, or not using drugs or alcohol. There's this huge gray area in between. Right, and so that ranges from people that are completely abstinent from substance use all the way to unmanageable, chaotic use. And there's a lot of things in between there. Um, the next thing is drug-related harm can't be assumed. Drugs work for people. Otherwise, people wouldn't use them. Um, they can meet really important needs for us. And then people who use drugs are people. That's why I say people who use drugs instead of the word addict or drug users. Um, I'm pretty sure I scrubbed all of this from drug users, but just in case, it should not be up there. Um, all right, so really quickly, just in terms of the basics of stigma, um, we don't have to learn a whole lot of the history about here. The, the most important part that I'd want to stress is, and for the purposes of today's discussion, is that it's a social process that can reinforce relations of power and control, which leads to status loss and discrimination. And so <clears throat> the four eyes of stigma as we define them, sorry. Uh, so interpersonal stigma, it's kind of when individuals and the public develop and sustain stereotypes and assumptions about individuals. I'll go into examples here in a second. Uh, internalized stigma, when people believe and adopt negative stereotypes and assumptions about themselves specifically. Institutional stigma uh, and inferred stigma. So for Interpersonal stigma, I'm going to use myself as an example pretty frequently here just because that's I use my experience to my advantage. Um, so interpersonal, like calling myself a junkie, being told by other people that I'm a junkie, being referred to being a part of a group that is known as junkies. Um, and and it, it, it reinforces itself inside of myself. And then also outside of, outside of an individual, it can be assumptions from providers about people being potentially aggressive, uh, people drug-seeking, kind of blanket statements and blanket ideas about individuals. Um, in terms of institutional stigma, we see that pretty frequently. Hiring practices around someone's substance use. You drop a urine analysis if you're getting ready to start a job and Presumably, if you come up hot for anything that is illegal, some in some cases things that are that are still legal, you might be barred from employment. 
um, <clears throat> corresponding man I'm, I'm sorry, the, the crack epidemic that we saw in the 80s and 90s, the way that that was framed, um, institutional stigma really kind of manifested in the disparity between crack cocaine mandatory minimum sentences and powder cocaine mandatory minimum sentences. One was associated with communities of color, was demonized. We demonized entire communities, locked them away for decades and decades, while the people that were enjoying powder cocaine at the time lived relatively uh, consequence-free in a lot of cases, largely white folks. Um, inferred stigma would probably be something like me as an abstinence-based treatment uh, provider thinking that the folks that are serving people in OTPs or methadone clinics or syringe access programs are enabling that person's drug use. And so I don't really, I don't trust them. I don't believe in the work that they're doing. Um, <clears throat> and then for, for the, I'm sorry, I got, I got interpersonal and internalized mixed up. So interpersonal would be uh, calling people junkies, the assumptions about, about people drug-seeking or being aggressive, interpersonal would be the things that I, that, that, that I internalize as a person who uses drugs specifically. So that I'm a bad person, that I don't deserve help, um, that things aren't ever going to get better, a lot of fatalism, and that consistently reinforces. And just as kind of a real quick example of how this would flow, starts with stereotypes, right? So... People with mental health challenges, people uh, with severe and persistent mental illness are incapable, fragile, dangerous, can't recover, right? Which leads to prejudice and beliefs that we have about these groups of people, like they're scary, they're shameful, I'm in a different place than, than, than they are, which leads to discrimination. So at the social level, I don't, want, I don't want people next door to me, don't want it in my backyard, we'll talk about NIMBY here in a second, um, I don't want to work with these people. And I want them to join my family. My sisters-in-law were really, really uncomfortable with the idea of me joining their family because of my substance use history. And it makes a lot of sense because I was really open and honest about what that life looked like for me and what life looks like for me now. And that's just kind of scary, especially when they've internalized messages like drug war messaging or this is your brain on drugs for decades. And then structural, we talked about it, employers don't hire um, so the, the recovery support isn't really, it's either black or white. You're in recovery if you're abstinent or if you're on a medication prescribed by a doctor, you get services then, but you don't get them until you stop using drugs. Um, another really clear example that I see really frequently is you cannot receive treatment for your mental health condition until you've treated your substance use disorder first which is really difficult to, to do what people are expecting of you around substance use if you have a severe and persistent mental illness or any mental health condition that uh, drugs make easier to manage. Questions so far with the fire hose? All right, sweet. So really quickly, in terms of uh, the elements of drug-related stigma, we kind of start with blame and moral judgment. The belief that drug use and problematic drug use at that is purely a choice. That people choose to engage in chaotic and problematic drug use. And as opposed to some other stigmas, people who use drugs are consistently blamed for bringing their actions on themselves. We don't really hear too often about how 
Well, if, if you had really, really poor eating habits and developed type 2 diabetes, you really need to, like, you should feel guilty about what it took for you to get to the point where you have type 2 diabetes. Um, we hold people who use drugs to the highest possible standards that are linked to their substance use. So we, there's a ton of socially constructed barriers, like the idea that you can't get into mental health treatment until you've stopped using drugs, um, that really prevent people from having the opportunity for care where they need it and where they feel like they can get it. Um, <clears throat> we, are, we do a pretty bad job also of acknowledging those barriers um, and acknowledging the conditions that lead people to problematic substance use in and of itself. And then we criminalize. So the best way, the best example of the way that uh, criminalization kind of props up stigma would be the war on drugs, which is really a war on people who use drugs, if we're just being completely honest. Uh, we, we, we treat it as a criminal justice matter as opposed to a public health matter. And by criminalizing folks, um, Labeling and judgment, we, le we legitimize all of it. So, okay, if I'm a kid and I'm receiving messages about, one, people who use drugs are bad, they're weak, you don't want to be a part of that group, you're cooler than that, they're losers. You combine that really consistently over years and years and years um, with images of people being arrested, hearing about your friends that do drugs that ended up in jail or prison. It's the logical consequence for a, a negative action that they took. It's criminal. They're a criminal. And then just another point on criminalization. When we criminalize something, we push it further underground. So that makes people far less likely to engage and reach out for help. It's really important to remember about criminalization. Sorry. Uh, and then we pathologize it. So we tell people that they're diseased. This is kind of a touchy subject because a lot of people, uh, myself included, uh, especially in my early recovery, um, follow the disease model, right? So, and I'm not saying that the disease model isn't helpful um, and that it shouldn't be used. What, what I'm saying is that we need to be critical of how discussion around addiction as a disease is framed in order to avoid stigma and pathologizing people as diseased and need to be, needing to be kept apart from. It implies that people are sick, uh, diseased, or otherwise can't help themselves, and it can also be kind of a sickness of character, right? We get a lot of our morals mixed up in how we view people who use drugs. Um, and it can lead to really patronizing behavior about how uh, professionals, parents, friends, loved ones, if they would only do what I told you to do, just do what I told you to do, everything will be fine takes away people's autonomy, their agency, and it kind of contributes to that. And when I curse a little bit, so I'm sorry, it just contributes to that feeling of, I'm a piece of shit. Question. Sure. When you said that uh, going with the disease model is not always helpful when you're talking to somebody, uh, is there a better way that you can think of that is, I don't know, just to be able to have that, have that conversation? I like the idea of framing it as a mental health condition. Mm -hmm. Um, we, we talk about the disease of addiction really frequently. And substance use disorder, using the term substance use disorder, automatically makes it a little bit sterile and a little, little bit clinical, but doesn't automatically lead us to, okay, that person needs to be quarantined because they're diseased and I'm going to catch it. 
it, 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 it allows a little bit of that of that same frame, but less stigmatization, if that makes sense. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yep. Cool. Yeah, thank you. All right. And then patronizing. So we speak down to people, treat them like they're a lower class person. Um, it comes through in language, so like how we communicate. Um, and it comes through in presumptions about the needs, desires, and experiences of people who use drugs. So we assume that because I worked with one person who had an opioid use disorder that was injecting drugs for 10 years, their experience can match yours somehow. Um, <clears throat> and we just we, we, we make far too many assumptions without actually ever talking to somebody about what their goals, what their needs, and what their opportunities currently look like. Um, there's a sentiment, like I said again, that we know what's best for drug users, uh, that we know what they need, as opposed to seeking input and involving them in the decisions that matter. And then finally, fear in isolation. So it acts in two capacities, fear of drug use itself, so like anti-drug campaigns, or this is your brain on drugs. Um, and then the second is fear of drug users. So we know that research shows healthcare providers expect people, patients who use drugs to be aggressive and dangerous. Right? We're just a little bit sketched out. We have policies and procedures that mainly apply to people who use drugs. If somebody's on a stimulant, you gotta be, you gotta be on the lookout. And that comes across in our interactions with individual patients. And I'm sorry, one more thing here. The way that that fear and isolation specifically impacts people who use drugs uh, is people like me are, are discouraged from talking about their substance use with the people that need to know to help provide health care or mental health care in a lot of cases, or even just supportive social services. Um, we find community in other people who use drugs because that's where, we're, uh, that's where we're not getting judgment from, which is gonna make behavior change uh, and like social environment change, which is often necessary for people to accomplish the goals they have around their substance use, exceedingly difficult. Because everywhere else I go, outside of my community of people who uses drugs, they all just remind me how much of a POS I am. And so the cycle, this is how it looks. So it starts with stereotypes and labels. So uh, things like junkie, dirty, irresponsible, criminal, careless. I'm going to let anybody down. I'm going to let anybody I know down. Everybody that gets close to me, I've consistently shown that, consistently been judged as a POS. That's who I am. And then we have expectations and roles. So I expect that I'm beyond help, that I'm the black sheep of my family, my school, my community. Uh, and that really kind of internalizes as, as your identity, which leads to limited opportunities. So I told myself that my first several attempts at treatment were unsuccessful, so what's the point? When in reality, the treatment I was referred to as a teenager was ineffective for me, as were the next six. But if, if I'm internalizing those stereotypes and labels and those expectations of myself, there's really not much more point to continue trying to get better or trying to achieve health, whatever that means for me. Especially since we know that the dichotomy of abstinent or using drugs or alcohol is present really consistently. So if I, it just seems impossible for me to stop using drugs, what's the point in even trying to get healthy? Because I've also been told the entire time that I've been using drugs, and even prior to that, that I'm going to end up dying anyway. People who use drugs, people who inject heroin are going to die. 
or they're going to end up in prison. And I wasn't going to allow that to happen. So some passive suicidality. Um, and then so I'm not worthy of broader health care. I'll never pass a drug test. So what's the point in even looking for a job? And then it internalizes and reinforces. So it was my fault. I was responsible. I should have known better. What's the point in seeking care anyway? I'm not worth it. I'm already on a path that everyone's told me will lead me to death, and I'll never amount to more unless I can stop using drugs. Further, I've helped other people initiate injection substance use, so that continues to contribute to my really, really poor self-image and self-esteem because it's another reinforcement that I'm a POS, which ultimately leads to stigma. So the people around me and providers think that I don't care about my health, uh, that I'm a danger to society and myself, that I'm diseased, and that I'm not going to seek treatment anyway. So what's the point? What's the point in even trying to help them? So what this means for us, um, one of the biggest components of stigma is how much it affects people like Maya's uh, willingness to access services. Um, so drug-related stigma leads to fear and anticipation of mistreatment, even if mistreatment hasn't actually occurred because we hear from our friends about how poorly their experience, how poor their experience was with another provider. Um, and then because of the pervasiveness of the stigma, the common experience for most of us is to remain guarded until trust is earned. And that's a really uphill battle for a provider. My therapist, who I've been working with since I started recovery, we didn't actually even start legitimate therapy probably for about three years because I did not trust her as a clinician. I trusted her just enough to keep going because it was helping a little bit, I think, but I wasn't going to give her the whole story until I knew that she wasn't going to turn around and try to use it against me in some way. And that's just, it's, a, it's a tough position to put a clinician in to have to build trust with somebody like that. <clears throat> um, if we don't want to disclose our use uh, or be identified as a person who used... Uh, by some of the services that we're accessing because we think it might affect how much services we'll continue to receive or will human services end up talking to my probation officer or something like that. Uh, we're not going to disclose our use, even though it would be really helpful for you as a provider to know that I'm using. You might have an inclination that I'm using, but it'd probably be helpful to know a lot more information, right? And just for there to be an open and honest transfer of information there. And then the relationships and trust. So relationships are at the core of effective service provision. They can be hindered by stigmatizing behavior and practices. So while we're still accessing some services despite stigmatizing language or behavior, the relationship's going to suffer. You think I'm a POS. I think I'm a POS. I'm not gonna, it's not going to be a real give-and-take reciprocal relationship. Um, so it can be really overt, and I call you a junkie when you come into my office, or I call people who use drugs junkies when you come into my office. Or it can be really subtle. Um, so I guess the best example for this would be uh, people offering incentives to program participants for some sort of behavior they want for them. Like if you're trying to get feedback, if you, if, if, and this is my agency included, my agency will not authorize me to give participants or feedback group participants or presenters cash honoraria. 
I'm allowed to do it for doctors during my provider education events. We trust the doctor to be responsible with their money, but we as an agency do not trust people who use drugs to spend their money wisely, despite the fact that we're utilizing them for their expertise and skill set. And then stigma affects relationships because providers' emotional responses to the client behavior uh, is often an emotional response based on internalized stigma. So when a client's dishonest about their substance use with a provider, for example, uh, the provider gets upset that the client doesn't trust them. In truth, the client is actually struggling, struggling to admit to themselves that they have a problem. Uh, they've got so much shame around their substance use that it's just really, really difficult for me to be honest about it. Another example, after I was recently married, I had a reoccurrence of use with my most problematic substance being opioids. And my wife was really, really upset that I hadn't been honest with her right at the outset about it. And that's tough because I really probably should have, like in our partnership and a marriage. But at the same time, that internalized stigma that I had continued to develop over a really, really long period of time physically prevented myself from being honest with her. Like I would, I would not be able to put out the words because it was, I was so fucked up internally about it. And then <clears throat> I'm going to skip assumptions really quick. So participant risk and behaviors. Um, folks are less likely to access prevention services. So um, things like if you're at high risk for HIV, the PrEP protocol, um, increased risk of overdose because people are using by themselves. Um, and then for client self-worth, it can, uh, uh, we, we've talked about that already, it, it diminishes client self-worth and self-esteem. Um, making it really, really difficult for us to make changes based on our own goals. And then around funding, I think we can all kind of figure out how this trickles down. Stigma affects people, the political will within the community to provide adequate funding and programs for people who use drugs or, or make services that are available for the broader community available for people who use drugs. <clears throat> um, we see that we see it pretty often currently in the discrepancy between funding for Hep C prevention as opposed to HIV prevention, um, and really HIV was really terrible before Ryan White, and so I think it was the Ryan White Act uh, basically uh, codified that you had to you had to take care of people with HIV despite how they contracted it. <clears throat> It legitimizes inadequate funding. Uh, it legitimizes budget cuts. It leads people and policymakers and uh, people engaged politically to believe if they don't care about their health care, we shouldn't either. Why do they need funding? They're throwing their lives away, putting a needle in their arm. Just not, they're not, people who use drugs aren't considered viable as political constituents right now. And that's something that we can work on changing together. Um, so differentiating and labeling, it's a social process, and it exists only because we create it. Although labels at times can be proven to be true, uh, generalizations are dangerous, unhelpful, and they're not accurate. 
Um, linking negative attributes to differentiated groups of individuals facilitates a sense of separation. Us and them, individuals of the group, are fundamentally different than me. And so that's going to lead to a stereotype. All right, so person who uses drugs, if they're choosing not to abstain, or how do they look? Like, are they coming into my, are they coming into my office or my uh, agency super disheveled? Um, do they look like this guy? Like, did, does, does the per, is the person well-dressed? Which drugs are they using? Are they using cannabis and alcohol, a little bit more socially acceptable? Are they using methamphetamine with a huge social stigma around it? How often do they use? Is it prescribed or illicit? Um, gender, race, race, and ethnicity all kind of play in to building upon the stigma. And then just really quickly around language, um, it's complicated. So in some cases, language that's typically negative gets reappropriated by the stigmatized group. So you see that a lot with like NACA, people referring to themselves as addicts and getting a lot of kind of power from that. Um, so is it, in your guys' opinion, is it still uh, stigmatizing if the person that uses drugs claims it as an identity? What's up? That's internalizing it, isn't it? It may be. Depends on how they use it, right? I think so. I mean, it, I, I, I think it, it determines, it, it, it kind of comes down to what the relationship is with that internalized stigma. So for me, I referred to myself as an addict for a really, really, really long time, up until about two years ago. Um, addict in recovery, person in recovery, addict primarily, though. I also referred to myself as junkie on occasion, that sort of thing. And I had a friend and a colleague who called me out on it. What is the point in using the term? And for me personally, I had derived some power out of it. Like, I'm taking it back. Um, and then at the same time, he asked me what I thought of when I thought of the word addict, and it wasn't positive. So for me, my relationship with kind of my internalized stigma really means that I probably shouldn't be using it. And also, like, I'm not going to call out somebody that's involved in a program where that's a huge benefit for them, right? And it's really kind of up to the individual. But us as providers and people providing services to people who use drugs, we can be clinical about it. We don't necessarily have to adopt the same language that might potentially be reinforcing their internalized stigma. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. I guess I would say as a person in recovery, um, and when I talk to people in long-term recovery or even if it's students in recovery, we have this private conversation we just find it so amusing how people that aren't in recovery spend so much time having a conversation about what is the right language to use. Just like the N-word, we don't want anyone else calling us it. Within our own race, we don't want to call each other it. Um, but it is when it comes to this conversation of terms, um, and I'll speak for myself, I always introduce myself in a fellowship meeting as a grateful alcoholic. And so it's not a stigma for us. It's I want to always remember that I am an alcoholic so that I cannot pick up a drink. It's not a dirty word. Um, being an addict, it just reminds me, like, I'm an addict. I can overeat food. I can overdo a lot of different things. So um, some people, when they tell their story, it's funny to say, like, I'm a crackhead. Thank God they're not an active crackhead, you know? So they see themselves as an act, a person in active recovery. Um, 
relapse, there's a whole bunch of conversation in recovery that it's not like you've ever relapsed. Once you've surrendered and accepted, you can't use. You know, we have a conversation that you didn't relapse. You never accepted that you couldn't stay stopped. The problem is you just don't know how to stay stopped. So, I mean, you've taken a lapse, but you haven't surrendered and accepted. And um, so I, I would just say that's kind of the general, and I've heard it in NA, and, and so, yeah, there's no, like, negative perception. I think where you're at in your recovery reflects how you feel about your own self. You know, if you feel dirty about it, it's just we haven't gotten there, and that's how I probably was in my early recovery, but I have surrendered. I was like, oh, my God, I accept it. I'm an alcoholic. I can't drink. And you don't feel ashamed. Some people do feel a lot of shame in the beginning, but you get to a point where you're like, yep, I have consequences. I don't care. You know? It's we have more shame around the crap we do from using, not about the fact that we identify as something. That we have shame about being a diabetic, a person with cancer. Does that make sense? Do you change the way that you identify? Based I on did the audience? Here, okay. And I really don't like it. Okay. Because it's really to make everybody else feel comfortable. I'm not a person in recovery. But I'll say that because that makes higher ed feel comfortable. We have a, a national association called the Association of Recovery in Higher Ed. A lot of people in recovery work in this field. And so they say, a person in recovery, but then we have our meeting within our association and we're like, hey, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> so. We do it because it's really to change, and we're like, oh, they're not in recovery. They don't understand, and that's okay. That makes sense. And I mean, from from my perspective, because I looked at it really similarly, and I still kind of do. Like, so, like, if I'm with a group of friends that I just we're all the same folks, right? We had similar experiences. Actually, I shouldn't say we're all the same folks if we're talking about this. Um, we had sh similar shared experiences, right? So, man, you're acting like an addict right now, dude, or uh, just kind of throwing away, throwing around kind of just what we're comfortable with and, and the life that we're used to uh, and the way that we're used to interacting with each other. But at the same time, like if I'm thinking about how we create a community level change, uh, an agency level change, the way that I as a person in recovery and a person who uses drugs, because that I, I consider both things to be true, um, <clears throat> I think that uh, me identifying and helping model the behavior that I'm expecting out of uh, the service providers around me can be kind of beneficial, right? And it really kind of, it's, it's audience specific too, but for us as providers, right, people who are working with people who use drugs, my suggestion would probably be to avoid things that would make them feel like crap about themselves potentially. And we know that using labels like this often contribute to that. And that's what I'm saying. It's like, I don't want anyone else calling me another word, like the N-word or whatever. So we can say we're an addict. You don't want someone else. It's so funny. It's so weird. It is weird. And the, the <laughs> correlation is interesting, too. It's very, very The other thing I'd say, too, is like, we don't care if we say, yeah, if I had a dirty piss test. Now, that's one that nobody would care. Because, yeah, it is dirty. You know, so for a clinician to say, like, oh, your test was dirty, they wouldn't be like, oh, my God, I feel so devastated. I just think some, so, yeah, it's just, the point is they're human beings. That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. All right, so heading into, are there any more questions about language? Okay. So heading into the functions of stigma, we simply refer them as the three Ds. So uh, difference, keeping people out, 
it exists. So stigma itself, exi form, it serves a function within our society. Uh, so we need to figure out where it comes from. Uh, and although the consequences of stigma are largely negative, to some extent, stigma is just a learned behavior. Um, and for difference, it's norm enforcement, it's keeping people out. Um, it applies to behavior seen as voluntary. So that person chose to use drugs. The consequences that they're experiencing are a result of that decision. <clears throat> uh, it's the most common function of stigma as it applies to substance use. Um, as a norm enforcement, it's about setting the boundaries of acceptable behavior. So creating an in-group and creating an out-group, the losers over there. Um, <clears throat> and it's about keeping people inside the boundaries of normal, in this case, acceptable substance use. Uh, I, w I won't out everybody. Um, I know a lot of people who drink. Super socially acceptable. I know a lot of people who are engaged along the spectrum of substance use from extremely problematic alcohol use disorder, definitely binge drinking, drinking uh, based on situations or just socially, kind of that sort of thing. But even the folks that engage in problematic use of alcohol are not often stigmatized at the same level as a person who's injecting drugs, for example, right? Because a lot of the people that are in power and control positions and uh, the way that our society has been built around alcohol use specifically, uh, larger society has been built around substance use for far longer. Uh, <clears throat> it, 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 there, there's just less of an incentive to change it. It's strongly linked to morals and values like we talked about earlier, social norms, emphasizing that personal choice at the root. So people who engage in certain behaviors bring related treatment on themselves. There's a perception that uh, anything that someone experiences that's a negative consequence of their substance use is uh, the product of that personal choice, that they engaged in bad behavior and they put themselves at risk, so it's their fault. So examples of this would be substance use, sex work, um, homosexuality when seen as a choice, <clears throat> um, unprotected sex, teenage preg pregnancy, all sorts of stuff. It also really reinforces NIMBY. Who's familiar with the NIMBY term? It stands for not in my backyard. So you'll see this with syringe access program. So if a syringe access program, uh, needle exchange, is trying to open up in a community, there's usually, sometimes not, we're really excited about it, but there's usually an uh, organized community effort against that because, yes, we understand that these people might need help and might need services, but nowhere near my kids, nowhere near their school, nowhere near where we shop, nowhere near where we live. We also see it with recovery residences. Uh, people are not a fan of having a big house of people who used to use drugs in the same spot in their neighborhood because they're going to rob you blind. I was at a community meeting for a new treatment provider opening up in Evergreen, um, it was pretty terrifying. There was a real consistent concern that the men at this facility would break out of the facility, walk a mile down the road, and pick up children to rape them. We heard that three different times from three different people. <clears throat> um, we can link that to disclosure. So we hear a lot about the NIMBY stuff. Uh, like if you heard from your syringe access provider, our neighbors are really pissed at us for opening up here. That can subconsciously, at least it did for me, I used to, when, when I used injection drugs, uh, syringe access programs were not legal here yet. So there was an underground syringe access program that would come out and meet you, which is awesome. They were risking their, their freedom to be able to help us stay safe. 
but they told us all about the struggles that they were having trying to open up a brick and mortar location. So that consistently reinforces the idea that people like me are unwanted in the community, we're not a part of the community, and we are POSs, I am a POS that is not deserving of any support. Because even the people that are trying to help me can't help me because of the community. So ultimately that's honestly gonna keep me from disclosing my substance use. <clears throat> the next one's danger, so disease avoidance, keeping people away. Uh, it's largely historical, uh, going back to evolutionary theories, but it's still relevant, especially when we're talking about HIV, hepatitis C, other infectious disease. Um, stigma as disease avoidance can function in two different ways. So we use stigma to keep people who are perceived as dangerous or infections away, and then we discourage people from engaging in behavior that could lead to disease. So don't use drugs, otherwise you're gonna get HIV, Hep C, you're gonna overdose, you're gonna get a staph infection, you're gonna get a abscess. So just don't use. Not how to use safer, don't use. <clears throat> and then fear of contagion, especially with HIV, hepatitis, tuberculosis. Um, and that's always, not always, but usually associated with some sort of illegal or socially sensitive uh, environment. So again, you see that in sex work, you see it in substance use, you see it in the LGBTQ community. <clears throat> um, we quarantine people with HIV on occasion. Uh, we incarcerate people who use drugs. We arrest the homeless and we isolate people with illness and disability. Just some examples of the way that the danger function. And then discrimination. So. Uh, I, I usually hate using the actual word stigma because it ultimately, I, I can't measure it. I can't measure a reduction in stigma. Um, and it's often pretty hard, it's like chasing smoke and it's really hard for people to conceptualize sometimes, so I usually like to just call it discrimination. Um, but it's a function of stigma <clears throat> and it's linked to the end goal of reducing power of others as a means to elevate the stigmatizer's power. It could be related to drug-related stigma in some ways, uh, but really the people that, that need to make the gain on this, that need to make the move on this, are the stigmatizers. So me, us, people in positions of providing service. Uh, it's used to legitimize the discrimination. Um, there's some people that ju are, they're just inferior to us. You're weak because you use drugs. You're inferior. <clears throat> so. Uh, that shows up in mass incarceration of individuals for nonviolent offenses. Um, and funding, there's a benefit to stigmatizing people with AIDS, people who use drugs, and other folks who might draw funding away from the other constituencies. Immigrant labor less means that, that uh, they, they, they don't deserve better jobs. They have to earn their place in society. People who use drugs have to earn their treatment and earn their health care by um, showing clear examples of the steps that they're taking to better their lives, gatekeeping a little bit. All right, so challenging stigma and creating change. Uh, I'm just going to give an example here. So consider a social service agency where providers have their individual practice kind of strategies. Um, the agency has a policy of hiring people who use drugs and providing cultural competency training. They also work with local law enforcement to educate about syringe access and occasionally organize lobbying trips. So ACT UP is a really clear example of this. Um, so a handful of people kind of formed a subcommittee to start providing syringes as part of a larger campaign. Uh, 
and individually the, the members learned and honed harm reduction kind of practices. <clears throat> At the organizational level, involvement of people who use drugs was prioritized, and therefore they participated in the advocacy around the funding and around the policy changes, and the entire process was underlined by a commitment to shifting beliefs and reducing stigma. And they also place stigma within a harm reduction framework, which basically means the harm reduction accepts that stigma is a part of the world, that there are ways to manage and challenge it, that it intersects with uh, other forms of marginalization and oppression, which is really important to remember, uh, and that when challenging stigma, meeting people where they're at is really important. And we just have to acknowledge that it's a gradual change. Um, we're not going to wake up tomorrow and somehow magically people who use drugs are seen as people. Um, and they're not going to magically have access to services. So we need to be able to celebrate incremental changes at the personal level, at the agency level, and at the community level. And so at the individual level, <clears throat> uh, one of the first things that we can do is address the way that we use language, right? So we talked a little bit about that earlier. Um, there's a few right and wrong, wrong answers when it comes to language, but it's critical to be mindful of what our language means and the impact that it could have, right? So I hear, I, I've heard this, uh, term a lot or statement a lot and I hate it and it's uh, assume best intent and my response to that is that intent doesn't negate its impact even if it's unconscious. So as providers we have to commit to being mindful of how something we say, how something we do or a policy that we might enact may land with the people we're trying to serve. Also we can use really simple switches in the language that we use from Addiction to substance use disorder, clinicalize it a little bit. People who use drugs, people in recovery as opposed to drug users, addicts, junkies, alcoholics. <clears throat> um, and language can really kind of set a tone for a relationship too. Uh, and it can bring up past stigma or trauma for folks. It's just something important to remember. And then exploring drug use honestly. This one's tough for a lot of us. Um, but we need to give clients and patients the room to talk about the benefits of their substance use. As well as the negative. So it might remove some of that potential judgment or perceived judgment. Honest conversations about substance use can promote shifts in relationships between uh, uh, clients and providers, promote greater trust, and then authentic relationship building. So um, kind of goes back into the honesty. Um, we have to treat everybody as an individual. Valuing their unique set of experiences, uh, the way that their life has panned out. Uh, we can't take a cookie cutter approach, uh, cookie cutter approach to service provision. If we do, we challenge the potential us versus them dynamic. And then exploring, sorry, I keep pressing the wrong button here. Um, <clears throat> Exploring disclosure and dialogue. So there is value in us as providers sharing our own experience. Whether it's my cousin had a substance use disorder, I saw this manifest in him, it was really, really difficult for him, I'm gonna commend you on just coming in today, right? Or I had a probation officer, which was the least likeliest source for this sort of information, but she was really, really honest with me that she had a, a problem with pharmaceutical opioids in college which was really, really weird for me. I had never had a probation officer talk to me like that, never had a clinician or a doctor talk to me like that. It instantly removed a lot of the wall that I had up with her 
of a us versus or a me versus her sort of thing, especially with law enforcement and criminal justice. Like, I'm not a fan of cops. That's just kind of who I've always been, right? Um, and it really kind of challenged that idea inside of myself. If she's willing to be honest with me about this, she might actually be here to help. And she was actually my last probation officer. I got off probation after that with, with her help, primarily. <clears throat> um, obviously, boundaries are super important in this conversation, right? So be mindful of how we disclose as providers, but we can really kind of level that playing field. Um, making substance use something that's okay to talk to anybody about, honestly. Or at least getting to that point. Uh, and then education and personal development. So this training is part of that process. Hopefully it's not the end of that process. Uh, we need to expand our individual cultural competency about drugs. All right, so cultural competency is really big right now. Diversity, equity, inclusion. How do we make sure that we're um, <clears throat> equitably serving people where they're at? We do that a lot, right, with uh, race, gender, that sort of stuff. With drugs, it's a little bit harder. Actually, I shouldn't say that. It's not necessarily harder. We just see a little bit less of a concerted and organized effort to confront it. And so staff and community level, um, within your agency, there's a couple different things we can do. So we can do training and education, uh, and build in the existing cultural competency work that y'all are doing. Um, and they need to extend to all levels of your staff. right? So oftentimes, we, we kind of make sure that uh, staff with clinical interactions or case management interactions have this sort of training. But really, how many other people does the patient or client talk to when they enter and leave the building? Like they talk to reception, they might talk to somebody from the maintenance staff, they might somehow be interacting with the executives of your organization. Everyone should be willing to commit to making some change around the way that we stigmatize people who use drugs. Um, so all levels of it. Knowledgeable staff will hopefully be more competent, less stigmatizing. Um, and then what do your outlets for feedback look like? Like is there an outlet or a process to discuss uh, any policies or behaviors that might be stigmatizing? It doesn't exist in my agency currently. We're working on it. But if you think about a local county health department not having a procedure to be able to address those sorts of concerns and provide that type of feedback, it's pretty consistent across the board. <clears throat> Um, the individual strategies that we talked about just a second ago uh, can also really be useful when applied to inner staff relationships. Sure. What would be like best practices for outlets for feedback? Or, like, how would you put that in place? So we're trying to make it cultural, right? So uh, we do lunch and learns constantly on all sorts of different topics, starting with stigma reduction. Right? So this training specifically built into another hour. And then from that, people who are really involved and interested in continuing to drive that work forward collaboratively and democratically determine the best way to develop a policy moving forward. So really, like any suggestions that I might have for the health department might not necessarily be applicable, because it should be a collaborative effort and everybody's input to try to figure out how you drive the process forward. Does that make sense? But it can always start with education. Okay. So then you can get people interested on fire about it. Um, I have five minutes left. So uh, really quickly, so we got outlets for feedback, assessment and practices. I'm honestly just asking our executive staff to annually take a look at how we're handling stigma. 
So we have a regular consistent assessment point to see how we're doing. Um, <clears throat> and then hiring people who use drugs is another component of this. It sends an important message to patients, staff, clients, the community, uh, that these are people too, extremely valuable, just as valuable as any other employee, have a mental health condition, but so do a ton of our other employees, potentially. Right, so Jeffco put their money where their mouth is when they hired me, and I would disclose right off the bat, I'm a person in recovery, but I also still use drugs, which was really, really cool. And I see that happening more and more. Um, <clears throat> the other opportunity, even within the staff level, and I'll talk about this at the community level again here in a second, but making sure that participants have the opportunity to provide feedback as well, and that if you have like that annual waypoint where you're evaluating how well you're doing, you're incorporating that feedback into your decision making. Does that make sense? All right, uh, so participant advisory boards. Uh, it's basically an organized group of people who are receiving services at your agency. Um, some of them, like if you're running a syringe access program, likely all of them will be people who inject drugs. If you're uh, just a public health clinic, people who inject drugs might just be a small part of your participant advisory board. Um, it's gonna require a lot of organization and some cat herding. I'm in the process of doing it now, currently. Uh, but you can be kind of creative in the way that you, you sell it to people in the community and, and your, your participants. Really the best way is to offer them a cash honorarium. That would be my suggestion. <clears throat> uh, and then awareness campaigns. It's possible for stigma to change even on a broad community level. Um, awareness campaigns, you see that a lot happening kind of around the state now with like Lift the Label campaign or uh, the Recovery Cards Project or even like the Bring the Locks Home and Home campaign. They kind of scratch the surface around recovery, but they're not really scratching the surface on uh, people who use drugs and really humanizing those folks. Uh, and then the Third way you, we can address community level changes through policy and advocacy, so legislative ad advocacy. Um, <clears throat> yeah, legislative advocacy. Uh, I won't use that example. Uh, and then events. So community events can be a good tool for unifying allies, getting people from the community that are charged about the issue to m become change agents for you. One, it's good to have their feedback, and two, it's nice to have somebody that isn't necessarily a part of your agency but believes in the work you're doing and believes in the people that you're serving to help champion your efforts within the community and hopefully replicate that champion over and over and over again. As soon as people have access to the information, it's kind of hard to argue with. All right, final questions. That I've liked. So we did an overdose awareness day. August 31st is International Overdose Awareness Day. A um, bunch of different agencies participate. There's usually a bunch of events across the state, across the country, across the world. Um, and we were really, really intentional in Jefferson County about uh, not making it solely about survivors of overdose and their families, because that can often make people who are currently using feel really uncomfortable about attending and participating. So I was really stoked about the level of involvement we had from people who use drugs in our community. And then also, we weave this into all of our provider education. So we talk a lot about integrated treatment between behavioral health and primary care, especially when we're talking about medication-assisted treatment prescribing. Doctors just aren't really familiar with needing to 
address the way that they talk to their patients, especially about substance use. It's just something that they didn't ever risk training on. So anytime that we have the opportunity to do provider education, we weave this in, and I've been really, really happy about that. The people that are best at this is the Harm Reduction Action, at least in Colorado, is the Harm Reduction Action Center. Uh, if any of you have ever heard Lisa Rayville talk, she's a badass, she's a rock star, and I think that she can pretty much convince uh, anybody of why this is important. Um, so if you haven't had a chance to hear her speak or go to a Harm Reduction Action Center event, I would highly encourage it because they do an excellent job. She's been on our podcast multiple times, by the way. And she's coming up soon. She's so. a rock star. Yeah. What's the name? Uh, her name's Lisa Rayville. R-A-V-I-L-L-E from the Harm Reduction Action Center. Any other questions at all? Well, thank you so much for having me. It was an honor to get to chat with everybody really quickly. Cool. Thank you. If you enjoy the Emergency Medical Minute, please help us out by rating us on iTunes. For more free medical education, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Make a donation and subscribe to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.